This is the 5am Hustle Podcast. Get ready to learn about entrepreneurship and self-help in the new era. I'm your host, Jack Considine. And I'm Namish Kaista. Let's go. Welcome back, Hustlers, to the 5am Hustle Podcast. I'm your host, Amish. And I'm Jack. Uh, our guest today is Deborah Smith. She's the co-founder of the Center Cap Group, which is a female-founded um, investment bank. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to talk to you and your audience. <laughs> sure. So um, can you just go into like your story, what you're about, um, so the audience is able to kind of understand a little bit? Okay, sure. So uh, I'm the co-founder and CEO of the Cap Group, which we founded in 2009. We are a real estate-focused investment bank. And for the benefit of, of your listeners, so we mainly focus along three lines around uh, corporate M&A, which is the buying and selling of companies. We advise on that, primarily in the real estate space. We uh, raise capital, uh, usually for large projects. So if you want to develop or acquire a large real estate project, we'll help you find the funding for that. And then we have a consulting business that helps uh, deploy capital into different investment opportunities. And so we underwrite managers, uh, usually on behalf of a lot of insurance companies, where to deploy capital into different kinds of investments. So we and our background before that, we're similarly, uh, I have two business partners now. All of us grew up in investment banking. Uh, one, one of my other partners and I spent seven years, I spent seven years at Morgan Stanley, beginning of my career when I started in Australia. And, uh, and we've gone on from bank to bank until we eventually decided that we should just start up our own bank and do things our own way. That's awesome. Um, so I kind of wanted to pivot from what you talked about there. Um, and I kind of want to start off by talking about um, your upbringing. So uh, when I contacted, you know, or when your person contacted me, uh, they talked a lot about how yeah. you grew up in a very um, different, like, yeah, like different, different way. So tell us about that. Yeah. So uh, I grew up on a dairy farm uh, in rural Australia, and uh, I didn't think there was any concept that I would ever go to college. In fact, it wasn't even something I'd even heard of going into 10th grade. And uh, I'm the first to go to college from my very expanded family. I have 42 first cousins. Um, Neither of my brothers finished high school. Neither of my parents went to high school. And so, you know, back in that environment, you're raised to stay on a farm and you're raised to continue the cycle. So I call it a, we have a family of dairy farmers And it was only fortuitous that we moved closer to Sydney. Um, My brother had a lot of health problems. So we moved closer to Sydney. And when you get that close, you get access to more information. um, And the teaching environment and the schools approach things a little differently. And so I had the very good fortune of uh, meeting a high school teacher, my economics teacher, in the 11th grade that decided I was kind of smart and uh, I should probably think about doing something else. And so helped me. Um, I, actually, I ended up graduating valedictorian of my school and then proceeded to go on and do a double degree in honours and law, uh, economics and law, graduated both with honours from the University of Sydney. And, you know, 
it's that experience. I mean, it's, it's a whole consequence. Someone just asked me this yesterday. And I said to him, look, life is full of open and closed doors. And the real trick, the real trick is to figure out which one. Because, <laughs> you know, going down the path of the closed doors isn't going to get you very far. So, you know, figuring out which is the open door and, and pursuing that and understanding that difference. And it's a little trial and error. Um, but I certainly look back and it's the culmination. I, I just have, I've been very fortunate to have people surrounded by a network of people who actually cared and, and saw something well before I did. And, you know, from there at high school, I went into college. Again, I had another professor, Professor Hogan, um, that took me under his wing through college and, and, and then similarly to law school. And when I started Morgan Stanley, it was the same thing. It's uh, I had uh, the, the person who interviewed me was senior in the Morgan Stanley office in Australia. Again, took me under their wing. And, and I look back and I don't know why Morgan Stanley hired me. I, I had no finance background at all. Um, I didn't even know what EBITDA was. Um, I'd never seen a financial statement. I knew nothing about the markets. And I certainly didn't know anything about M&A. Um, and and they, they took a chance. And, uh, and I started in Australia and, and I moved to the US. And again, the, there's a whole history where someone uh, paid attention and someone focused and saw something. And, and, and I, I really believe, you know, life is about trying to find those mentors and people um, that, that, that are paying attention to who you are is, is really important. And, and I can go on. The rest of my career has been a series of that uh, and where people have helped facilitate it. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, all these people have been super helpful. But as someone said to me, when I was an analyst at Morgan Stanley, and I remember very clearly sitting in his office, you know, he said, Deb, I can help you go anywhere you want in your career, anywhere you want to go. But at the end of the day, it's yours and you own it um, and you're going to take charge of it. And, and so, you know, make smart choices. Um, and once you commit, you work hard. And, and, and that's the story of how the evolution of how it continues to go. And it's been a crazy journey because I sit here today and I have two extraordinary business partners um, which is the same thing. We, we figured out how to make it work um, and those relationships have stuck. And so I'm, I'm super appreciative as I look back and I can honestly tell you that when I was in college, there was absolutely no way I would have ever have seen myself A, in investment banking, B, doing real estate, C, living in the United States or D, opening my own business. So it's, again, it's, it's a life of not getting too caught up in what you think should be and what you think you want to do and just being smart about recognizing open and closed doors and opportunities that are there, if that's helpful. Yeah, I think it's so crazy how, like, you never know, like, how you're saying, like, when you're in college, you never would have thought you would have done these things. Um, and I even think about, Jack and I think about it a lot, like, even us, like, three or four years ago, never would have thought that we'd be doing what we're doing right now. Um, and I think that's perfectly okay. I mean, I think like sometimes I hear a lot of people always say like, oh, make sure like who you want, like who you want to be as a child or like is super satisfied. And I don't think that's true at all because your interests continually change and like your development continually changes. So it's like, yeah, like when I was four, I wanted to be an astronaut. I'm not going to be an astronaut, you know? <laughs> and like, that's, that's really fine because interests change. Yeah, I think. look, Stanley Heights too two people in my year when I started. And the other person was someone who was the perfect candidate. Um, wanted a life in investment banking, wanted to pursue this. Um, and, and I lasted, I've outlasted most of my class. 
uh, that I started with. And I'm still doing the same thing. There aren't too many people that once you finish college, you're still doing what you're doing 25 years later. And I still am. And, and I love this business. Um, I get up every day and there's, I think I'm lucky to do this. Um, and I love it. I love it. And so there's no, oh my God, this is a grind. Um, it is very much a case of, uh, I enjoy the problem solving. I love the analytics. I love figuring out how to get from A to B and the ultimate daily challenge of what my job is. It's really exciting and, and I love it. And for anyone who's looking at a career in finance, you know, it, it just opens a lot of doors, but more importantly, it provides an enormous amount of flexibility to direct your career in, in any direction because the it has a super strong foundation if you can find a home team um, that's willing to support you in your effort. And, and I've realized support comes from being really good. <laughs> so you'll have lots of support. If you're good at what you do, you will have a lot of support and, and the rest will follow. It's, you know, most of my story, I, I suspect that if I didn't work as hard and I didn't have as good a grades or I, I didn't accelerate, I wasn't in the office, you know, we worked 100 hours a week when I started. And if I didn't do those things, the outcome would have been different. Um, and, and I just, I did them because I, I wanted to be the best of whatever I was. See that. Um, and they and they want to work with it. And so, you know, it's all that as I look back, I didn't think any of that at the time. I was just doing I just assumed every analyst was made the same. We all did the same work, the same quality work. And now that I'm really senior, that's not true. <laughs> People have very different skills um, and it's about finding those that work for you and fit for you. Uh, I'm not a big proponent of, look, let's go down a path that I'm not good at but I'll try really, really hard and continue to pursue. I'm not about that. I'm like, life's a drag if you do that because then you'll make yourself miserable. People should focus on things they're good at, makes them happy, and it gives you an opportunity to excel. Totally. When you're really good at something and you said, like, you'll find the support, what my dad always told me in high school is, like, the college you go to is somewhat important, but you just need to show potential to one staff member at that school and you'll get the experience you need because they'll take you, like you said, under their wing. They'll be a mentor and show you kind of the ropes of whatever you want to get into. And like that's already pretty much happened, um, at least in my case, which I've been very grateful for. But it's having those stepping stones along the way with the person just to pull you up just a little bit. And they know you're good and they know you can be great. That's like the, the indicator is that you're not just good, but you have the potential. And I think that is something that's it's a tough thing to be able to kind of sniff out but if they do and they see that you're good at something like you said you didn't think that you necessarily were ready to be hired but maybe they saw more of your work ethic and um your values as being the the main proponent besides any other thing that they could have taught you personally that you would have just eaten up immediately and so that's kind of those intangibles that people look for yeah, I mean, it's really the intangibles. You know, even, even as an employer now, you know, I it's not, I think the school's important and grades are important, don't get me wrong, but I as an employer am interested in, in a lot more than that. Um, I'm interested in, you know, whether you played a sport, whether, you're, you know, you worked in college or whether you worked in high school or, you know, whether you grew up on a farm and these things are intangibles. Um, because at the end of the day, if you have good intangibles, and, and Jack, as you're saying, if you have a good work ethic 
and you work hard, you have grit. If you have these things, I can teach you anything. I literally can teach you anything and you will get there. Um, and so it's less of even the type of degree um, of what people do. And it's sussing out all of those intangibles that I think are, are really, really important. And, and they last a lifetime. Knowledge, knowledge, let's face it, knowledge today in the world of the internet is practically free. Um, anything you want to know, I can ask Alexa, right? So it's, it's the intangibles of being able to take knowledge and do something with it. Um, and whether it's to synthesize it and come up with new ideas or new knowledge um, is much more important. And, and it's, it's a little bit this distinguishing between, you know, I can give you a financial model and if it doesn't work and you say, well, that's what the model says versus the person who says, I'm going to figure that out because I can see it's not right. So let me try and figure it out. Um, they're the two different skills. And the second person goes so much further because of the work ethic that your dad was talking about, that ends up surviving above all else. I can tell you 25 years out of college, it is the one thing that survives above all else because everything else can be taught. Knowledge can be taught. And, and I think that's the, the really important thing. And where your grades are important to me, it's not because of what you study. It, it's a representation of your work ethic. That, that's really what it is. It's a representation of that pushing yourself and understanding your potential um, and understanding how to, to how to learn from that um, and, and how to use it um, to go to the next level is, is much more important than the content itself. Do you think that you got your work ethic personally, like growing up in that um, different environment, the dairy farm, do you think that was a proponent to kind of the values that you withheld throughout um, your studies and your career? Um, look, the reality is growing up as a kid, it wasn't so much about options or choice. So I had to milk cows before school. Um, you know, I'd get up at 4am, 3am, 5am, depending on the farm. So, and then I'd have to get off the bus in the afternoon and milk more cows. And, and it was just a way of life of, of what I had to do. But as someone said to me the other day, that if I had been bouncing a ball against the shed instead, I, that probably means I'm a very different person. Um, than the person that does what needs to be done. And, and I, I don't spend a lot of time, even the things I don't enjoy, and there's lots of things we don't enjoy in life, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about whether I, I want to do it. What doesn't factor into it? it? It just needs to be done. And and so, you know, growing up, all of those things, which I, by the way, I don't know if they were particularly enjoyable every day, I didn't think about it. They just needed to be done. And so, you know, I ran track. Um, I've always worked I had three jobs in college. I paid my own way. Um, and, and all of these things, some of it was about uh, I wanted an exposure and experience in something. Some of it was pure passion. Um, and some of it was facilitated by my mentors in college. Uh, those, those, those professors that are, are way older and have really messy offices, um, they have a lot of really good intel. And they've been around the block a few times. So they're actually really, really smart. Um, and it, but it's the life experiences that, that, that pass along to you. So I think, you know, the, the greatest benefit that I got growing up is that um, I had to multitask, I had to get through it. And, and, I, and I think the, the work ethic of, of wanting to do everything well on in and of itself um, is probably what drove it. But, but I can also tell you, you know, my parents, because they didn't go to high school, um, there was no pressure from home around grades. 
no pressure. There wasn't even expectation to go to college. Um, and when I got into law school, my dad said to me, how was I going to survive in a man's world? So, you know, the world has come a long way. But, but those concepts, you know, it never occurred to me. I just did it um, and, and did it to the best of my ability. And I don't know if you can teach work ethic. I think you're born with it. And, and I think your people can foster it. Your parents can foster it and your peers and your friends and all these things. But at the end, at the end of the day, um, work ethic is kind of who you are as a person and it's kind of you're born with it. Um, and it's just a question of what you choose to do with it that separates you from everybody else. Yeah, so is it kind of like what you're saying is like a lot, most people have that potential to like have a really great work ethic and then, but somebody has to, it has to be fostered somewhere essentially, kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think, look, we all have, we're all our babies at one point, right? And we all evolve. And, right. and I think it comes down to how hard you want to work at something. Like if you were given something and, you know, for example, like a puzzle, a thousand piece puzzle. Are you the person who has to sit there and do it till you get it because you have to finish it and it drives you crazy to have it unfinished? Are you the person that is happy just to leave it there and you'll potter over it and if it doesn't get done, that's okay, right? But if you take that concept and apply it to everything um, and, and it's, it's its own worst failure in some ways, right? Because you become a little too A-type. Like I can't even, you give me the simplest things and it has to be perfect. And it'll drive me crazy if it is not. And it could be washing dishes. It could be folding laundry. It could be negotiating deals or reading a thousand page contract. I, I have to do it to the best of my ability. You know, and I sit on a few boards and, and I could get a thousand pages for a board meeting and I have to read every page. Um, do I need to? That's questionable. But I read every page because it's been given to me and I, I can't, I want to make sure I understand everything because if you want me to make a decision about something, I have to read it and I have to understand it and I have to process it. And that makes me a little bit of a pain in the neck, actually. Um, and it probably makes the people who work with me, uh, they're a pain in the neck too. Uh, but, but that's part of your, your work ethic of who you are. Are you comfortable driving through and pushing through on everything? And, and I don't think that's, you know, it doesn't have to be on everything because for people that don't like things or they don't want to invest the time in something, it, it just, you know, if it's okay to stick to your knitting and you have that and other things you don't care, right, because there's not enough hours in the day, and that's fine too. But as long as it's, it's something that, you know, life's too short to do things you're not happy and passionate about, that's my number one. And if you have that and you're willing to work really, really hard and dedicate yourself to it, there's no such word as can't or won't or I can't do this or as limitations. There are none. There are none. And, and that would be my message is you can achieve anything, anything in this world. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise if, if you're really dedicated and you want to excel um, and you just take it on like there is no concept that you won't succeed. There's only a concept that you will. Um, and I think that's the way you go through it. But you have to have a work ethic for that. Um, and not everybody has it. That's why the world is so diverse and, and that's why we have all kinds of jobs and there's some jobs you guys will want to do when you graduate college and there's jobs that other people want to do. And sometimes kids don't want to go to college at all and they want to go do an apprenticeship instead or some other job and that's fine too. But, but because everyone can measure their own happiness, but it, it's a lot more fulfilling if you're pursuing something you're good at um, and, and you're willing to dedicate yourself to do it well. It certainly makes life a lot more pleasurable, that's for sure. Agreed.
Um, yeah, so I kind of wanted to pivot and talk a little bit about um, the job itself and what you mm -hmm. do and like how, so obviously like investment banking or when you worked at Morgan Stanley and even when you're running your firm now, um, it has a rep for being, you know, very like really like people, people that work really hard go into it and people that are consistently really putting in the hours are doing that and it's very stressful you know, she said that really nice you mean we really we work like 100 hours a week and life sucks most of the time is that what you mean <laughs> i mean yeah a little bit like that you know i mean what you just said when you started out you were 100 hour weeks oh my um, gosh yes which is we never left the boggling yeah right. you know, and honestly um i would do it all over again i would absolutely do it all over again i would work my heart hours a week the whole work ethic thing um i would work my 100 hours a week and i never left the office i said i ate three meals a day in the office and a, a little a side story so when the way i got to the us um we were privatizing the power grid you know in south australia it was all uh essentially and sold all the pieces off and then one day during the week i got a call from the head of the office and says you need to be in new york Monday next week. I'm like, and I, by the way, I had been living in a hotel. I hadn't even been to my apartment in Melbourne for, for months. So I had an apartment. I was living in a hotel. I'm a first year analyst at, with, with no finance experience. I hadn't even been through Morgan Stanley training. And they said, you need to be in the US, um, you know, uh, next Monday because we're working on a privatization of a, a South American power supplier and you, <laughs> they need an analyst. I need you to go to the US. So you need to go back to Melbourne, pack up your apartment, get on a plane. We'll send your stuff over. Just take what you need and, and we'll send it over. So they put me in corporate housing. I walked into Morgan Stanley's office. No one expected me. My desk was a storage closet. And I no one even knew who I was because the assignments associate was traveling. And so as a result, I kind of fell into my desk. I got my computer. No one even told me where the bathrooms were. It's, you know, we worked really hard. And, and when someone went on vacation in our bullpens, everyone would be like, what, you're going on vacation? Because then someone else had to pick up the slack. And, and that's really what happened. But our, our group, we were really good friends. And we, you know, we never left the office. We ate all those meals there. And, and I remember when I, it was time to get my very first paycheck at Boise Island, I didn't even have a bank account because I hadn't left the office. And they said to her, I, I remember going up and saying, I need to leave to go set up a bank account. <laughs> my assignment associate turned around and said, well, how long is that going to take? I said, I don't know. I don't even know who the banks are. I mean, give me a break. So I got it all set up. But it was going with the flow, but it was crazy. There could have been literally hurricanes outside our office and we would have no idea. And here's the thing. I wouldn't change it for the world because out of that experience, um, when I got many a night, we never went home many nights um i had learned so much and i had done so many deals and some of it's self-perpetuating because if someone came to me and said hey dad we've got this deal do you want to work on it i'd be like heck yeah of course i want to work on it and i was constantly overworked it was self-inflicted wounds i didn't think it was the firm so much it was more our group of analysts um we worked hard by choice in part because we loved what we did. It would have been nice to have maybe an extra one or two analysts, but, but that would mean we also didn't get to work on all the awesome deals. And so I did an enormous amount of deals. So I've done over $100 billion of deals now. And, and part of that was because forever grateful 
um, to that team. That we they were absolute great friends. Um, the senior folks were amazing, um, and it created a really really awesome experience. Uh, and, it, and it's hard to quite appreciate it until you've lived it. But my generation who grew up in banking then um, are very strong from ex- the experience that we had, both from a deal execution, from a knowledge, because so much of it gets jammed in, in a very short time frame. So by the time I moved over to Wachovia, um, I remember walking home one night on a Sunday and my deal had been completed and I got a call saying, hey, do you want to come and work on this other deal? And uh, we're meeting over the lawyer's office. We just got a call that needs to be done. I turned around in the middle of the street and headed over to the lawyer's office. And it was the coolest thing. And these, these deals, I could do deal after deal. Um, and I, I just love, because I love this business. And, and what I think when you love what you do, it's a lot easier to put in the hours um, than not. But, but it's a reflection too. I worked the same hours in college. Why? Because I wanted to be the best. Um, so I, I worked very long hours in college because I also worked so many jobs. Um, but I, I had to, I wanted perfect grades. I always just, and not because I thought perfect grades were going to get me to somewhere better. I wanted perfect grades because that's who I am. I wanted to be the best for the whole purpose that if this is the measurement of my capability, then that's what I want. That's my bogey. And, and so I will push and push and push and, until I can get it. And I will work whatever, I will do whatever it takes um, in terms of hours and work product to hit that bogey. And, and that, again, it's, I think it's a little bit, you're born with that. Um, and it's a, but it also sends you crazy. I'm not sure it's always the best thing, uh, you know, because you sleep a lot less and uh, you, know, you always have too much on your plate. Um, you don't get much relaxation. So I'm always doing something that I, I wouldn't have it any, I really wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't have, because you remember, if, if you're not working, then you're not learning, right? So if you're, if in my business, um, if, if you want the deal experience and you want to get to a senior level where you know a lot, you don't get there from not doing the work. It, it doesn't just magically show up. You, you have to work at it. And, and all of these things, it's no different than a sport. If you want to be Usain Bolt, he didn't get there by showing up a few hours a week. He's got to put in the time um, until he's throwing up on the track because that is required in order to get to the best. And it's not for everybody. It's not. Um, but at least in my upbringing, that's how it was. And my two partners had very similar. Their experiences was exactly the same. But as someone will say to me, that's why we are where we are. And others aren't. Uh, it, it, it's that, and, and that's a choice. It's an individual choice because it may not be for everybody. Um, and, and it's not to say you need to do that to be happy. I'm just saying that for us, that's what we needed to do. <laughs> and for everybody yeah. else, people have to measure what they want to do to get their own happiness. Um, I'm just saying if you're prepared to do that and you're prepared to put in the time you want to work hard, the world really is your oyster and it's full of available opportunities for people who want to take it. That was like your apprenticeship. Yeah, so like we, Namisha and I talk about the the ten thousand hour rule a lot, and that was your mastery of your craft. And uh, and I'm, I'm sure it was much easier. You said you liked all the people you worked with, and it was a good coach. Like that goes into it a lot. But I'm sure that was kind of your mastery of what you were doing work wise, and that's possibly what made you such a a credible and reliable person to kind of rise up the ranks and and be such a 
um, like a, an authority figure now and being able to kind of do like these bigger deals and whatnot is because of those things you did previously. Yeah, and that's right. Because the experience begets experience, right? So if you do a lot of different things, um, you get to benefit from all those experiences to, to, to get to the next one. So now, you know, all of our transactions in our firm, I start with a clean piece of paper. And the joy is I can take any deal now and evaluate it. And I just, ideas just come to me around, okay, why don't we do it this way? Um, that if I have two parties that want to do something, I will make it happen. I will figure it out. And I come up with some crazy stuff sometimes. It's crazy. It's even crazy to me. But, but it works. It totally works. But that's because I've done all these other things beforehand that's given me the basis to evaluate it. And, and you can do all kinds of reading and read and read and read. You can listen to audiobooks and all those things are really important. But it doesn't be or nor can it exist separate from the experience of having done it yourself. And, and, and that is, you know, if, if, if for, for folks particularly going to finance, like a little thing uh, that I didn't realize most people didn't do till I got older is that as an analyst, I built all my own models from scratch, everyone. Um, I could have taken someone's model and accommodated and adjusted it, but my belief always was is that um, if you want me to take responsibility for it, the only way I can do that is if I built it myself because then I know what's in it, right? I control it. And as an analyst, I was a little bit of a pain in the neck because I also wouldn't let anyone touch it. So no one was allowed to run my models. No one was allowed to touch it. And so as a result, sometimes I overcomplicated them and I made them really, really hard so no one else could use them. Um, and I had some crazy functions in there. And, you know, if someone tried to sit down, they couldn't use it. Uh, but, but that was my mindset that I carry through to today. There is real merit to building yourself. You know what's in it. Um, and you can be accountable for it. And, and, and I think that's, I had learned uh, very early on in Morgan Stanley that, a, a, again, it plays into, you know, if, if you've got something on your plate, you're responsible for it. And I know in my firm and my mindset is, is if you use something that belongs to somebody else and you've decided to improve it or borrow it, and if there's something wrong, I don't care. You, that's yours. You own it. You brought it to me and you own it. And, and if you're going to, if something comes into your purview and, and you're going to send it on to someone else or you're going to edit or change it, you take some responsibility if you're going to then deliver it to somebody else, right? You, you don't get to sidestep and say, well, I took it from Johnny and Johnny gave it to me and, you know, I made some modification. No, no, you should understand perfectly what you have because, you know, me, I'm looking at you and you're the guy bringing it to me. And so I expect you to take ownership of that. And so that's why I went end up building most things from scratch but then it's also a lot of fun right because you get to design it and build it and make it do whatever you want it to do and so i think that's a lot of fun but that's just i mean that's my industry of what i mean i'm sure different industries function differently but at least in my world of finance uh that's the way i encourage people to look at things is to to really make sure you understand it and you really only understand it if you've built it yourself Jack's thinking I'm never going into finance. That's what you guys are thinking. I'm never doing this finance business. This, this stuff sounds like it's, it's, it's way I too mean, much work. Asked, you should ask Jack what his major is. What do you imagine in Jack? Finance. Finance. 
<laughs> that is too funny. That is too funny. Welcome to my well. Trust me, it's awesome. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm like I I look down like the little consulting line. So we're kind of like we're kind of enemies here, you know. <laughs> yeah. We know consulting, you know, so we have a consulting business too. Um, and you're right, it is different from the finance side of the house, but where they cross over is that, and, and, and particularly in, in any banking, it goes the same way. So in banking, there's your M&A side, which is all your transaction business, which is the line I went down. And, yeah, and so then what does M&A stand for? Sorry, could you just acquisitions. Okay. Most okay. acquisitions. So if you go to a bank, right, so the way they're typically structured in the investment banking side, so you have each of your individual groups, um, and then some firms have an M&A department, which is the, the, the transaction side of the house, which Morgan Stanley was designed that way. And then you have all your different pods that do coverage. And the way the coverage works is more consulting. So you're designing books, you're, you're pitching, you're doing strategic stuff in terms of presentation format. And that's more of a corporate finance function. Um, and, and at least when I was, I'm not sure how my Morgan Stanley does it now, but when, when I went through it, um, there were a couple of groups that did all their M&A and corporate finance in the same group. And, and I grew up in GPUG, which is Global Power and Utilities, and we did everything in-house. And, and then whereas the industrials, they would use, do corporate finance in their group and then use the M&A group to execute transactions. So what would happen is, say you get engaged by a client XYZ because they want to buy another company or they want to sell themselves, right? So they'll come to you and they say, well, how do they, they don't know. I mean, how do you value? I mean, who do you go to? How do I structure it? You know, how does compensation work? All these questions come up. And in our group, we had, there were um, coverage analysts and there were M&A analysts. And I was on the M&A side. And so I didn't do a whole lot of pitch box or trying to win business. I didn't do very much of that. I went down the execution side. And, and now where we are as a firm, we do it all in-house. And so we, we and so uh, it's all tends to be in one group and some of us focus on coverage and I still on the transaction side, but we have a consulting practice that does uh, like strategic planning, strategic reviews. We do, and my pet love uh, um, is to where a company knows they need to grow, they have no idea how to go about it. And I go in and I come up with a plan of what they're good at, what they're not good at, and what they need to do to market themselves to institutional investors. And you'd be amazed at how many companies who have super smart people, they make lots and lots of money, and they can't even crystallize their own story of what they're good at. They can't crystallize it. Um, it's really quite remarkable. And so I come in or I reposition them. I make them look different than who they actually are so they can distinguish themselves in the market. And that is a skill. And I love to do that now. I'm not sure I even had the capabilities to do that 20 years ago. And why can I do that now? Because I have worked with so many companies on the M&A side, all that experience, all those hours I've worked. I have seen so many companies now that I can get in and analyze a company very quickly and figure out if they're what they're good at what they're not good at and then the rest is writing the story but i can at least assess it in a very quick period of time and that's come from experience of having done it a lot so it kind of there is those two paths and you know jack if you're looking at going into banking um 
part of that will be is when you're talking to firms is asking, well, do you do corporate finance and banking in the same group? Do you outsource it? How do you work across groups um, with other parts of the firm? And how does, you know, how do you move across firms in order to do that? And, And those are some of the questions and the size of the bank will play a little bit into that. But, but there tends to be a, a focus around and you end up going into corporate finance doing pitching, you're not going to be so happy with your experience. You're going to be like, well, this kind of sucks. You know, I'm a, I, I, I want to do numbers and models and LBOs and things like this. And then you're sitting there dealing with logos and swapping their order for 100 hours. I mean, it, it, that's not, and some people love that. But if that's not you, you need to make sure you understand that and you understand exactly the experience you're getting before you move forward. And Namish, I got another for you because I'm not in consulting. (laughs) (laughs) That's all good. Deb, I'm very very curious because a lot of our listener base are a lot of young people that are in high school, in college, right out of college. And I'd say a decent amount of them are trying to get into your industry. And it's always like, the golden ticket. It's a tough thing to get into, but once you're in um, and you work very hard, like you say, um, there's a lot of good things involved in it. And a lot of people love it. And so if you were to go back and you were now a freshman in college again, what would you do to either like find those opportunities and make yourself stand out compared to other candidates or people that are trying to get the same position that you are? And that's kind of like, that question is phrased like, if you, if you were college age like today, like mm-hmm. in 2022, what would you do? Right. So um, I'm a very big proponent to work. And it doesn't necessarily need to be in the industry you necessarily want to go into, right? It's all about getting this experience. Because my jobs in college, none of them were banking. Remember, I didn't know what banking was until I put in my application, I got interviewed, right? But what I did do in college I taught economics. I was an associate professor of economics um, at the college. I had my own office on campus and I taught through the economics there. I did legal aid um, as because I went to law school. I did legal aid um, for, for nothing. It was non-for-profit because I wanted the exposure. And I was a paralegal at a firm. And then in the summer, I packed underwear at the Bonds factory. So, you know, I, I did a lot of different things. But what you get out of that, is um, you get a tenacity out of it, you get exposure to a work environment, and it gives you as one, another stepping stone. Because out of that experience, you're like, well, why don't I try this? Or why don't I reach out to this person? Um, and then I would send out resumes and, and talk, talk to people. I had my Professor Hogan in college, talk to people. Um, talking is a productive skill. <laughs> I, I, for, the, for the finance folks, it doesn't seem that way because you get nothing done, but, but you actually do. And, and start, you don't have to go from zero to 100 and put in your banking if I don't get it. There are several different ways to get to the same problem. And this is the number one flaw I find on people's applications for college and for a job, at least for me. People think if they worked at a Starbucks or they worked in a supermarket while they're in college or they did tutoring, you know, for dyslexic kids in the sixth grade, that they think that's not valuable, that they have to put in finance or they have to put in these great things on their resume for them to be important. That's not true. Um, I often find for the people I end up hiring, um, I'm interested in that stuff, right? Because that's the stuff. And if you're holding good grades and you're playing a sport and you're doing all these other things, I'm like, wow, that person can multi-skill. They're pretty smart. 
I, I don't need the perfect student. I'm after, remember, I'm after the person who can learn by doing, right? So start with those stepping stones. The first step is to have the job, a job, have a job, and, and then you can progress from there. And if you want to target and go into the banking, you know, sooner or you want to explore that, then you, you talk to a professor in your space, right, and ask for their advice and say, what do you think? And then all else, send out resumes. You could send out a thousand, your resume to a thousand different folks. If you get one callback, you're tenacious. You get a callback that is better than nothing. There is a time investment in, in this in order to do it. And I would encourage, if you already know you want to go into banking as a freshman, then start doing that, right? I didn't know about banking, but I knew I wanted to work. Um, and, and those life experiences, even from those things, are incredibly valuable because what it also gives you is, is when you go into a job interview, you can talk about all kinds of stuff. Like even if you worked at Starbucks or the supermarket as a packing person, the amount of stories you get from life experiences, people want to hear about that because it defines who you are as a person, right? And it gives you texture and it gives you content because what you want, the same as when, how you got into college, when you graduate from college, if you want to distinguish yourself, it doesn't have to be because you work three summers as a, in finance. There's a lot of different ways to make yourself stand out um, that give you texture. Because at the end of the day, who people want to hire is people you can have a conversation with. And, and it could be about random stuff or, you know, it's, it's things you that can converse um, and make you someone that people want to work with. And, and that stuff counts as much for anything. And to get that, it means you have to have had life experiences. So start with the life experiences. Aim for the fences. Try and put in for banking jobs, but don't be discouraged if you don't get it. It's okay. It's totally okay. It's okay. The, the folks that we've hired, um, none of them had banking experience, right? But they all had different experiences that made them people I wanted to hire. Um, and, and that's where it all starts because at the end of the day, people want to hire people they like and they want to hire people that they can interact with. And so find something in the life experiences will give you commonality, even if it's not the finance or the consulting commonality, um, that would work. And if those pass, you still they don't want to work. For finance and for consulting, be the same thing. Go find a non-for-profit where you can spend some hours that are closely linked, that, that can demonstrate that. Um, and, and it could be any form related to those to help you to, to demonstrate um, that your willingness, because remember, it's work ethic, right? So to demonstrate some willingness, you want to get into those things. But all of these things, you should be thinking to yourself, how can I distinguish myself from the next person? And it doesn't have to be because you spent, you know, your three summers at an investment bank. That's great. But, but you know, there's only so many of those experiences you can get. And there is lots of banking jobs. But, but people are looking for things that are different because for every job we have for an opening, we probably have 2,000 applications, right? And how do we get through those? Well, you run through your resume and we're looking for things that stand out because lots of kids have great grades. Um, lots of kids, you know, went to a good school. Lots of kids went to a good high school. Um, so how do you set yourself apart from those things? And it's be creating life experiences along those lines that I think uh, tend to be, that, that I think are valuable. For sure. Um, so just another question that we wanted to talk to you about, um, because you are the, <clears throat> you do run a, a investment bank. So um, we were wondering if you had tips for 
financial literacy for like a younger audience like if like if you're 18 19 20 what should you do to try to like stay financially literate like what are the basics excellent question excellent question um and i go back to my own experience and this is all going to come circular so the question was an amazing question for this reason is the greatest gift that you can have gift to yourself when you're 18 or 19 is to manage your own money right until you manage your own money you're dependent on somebody else right you're dependent for for how you can use it what you can do with it um, and, and if you want to break that dependency, take control of your own financial destiny, which I'm a huge proponent of, the younger the better. My kids, my, my children, even at 13 years old, manage their own money. And, and whether it's money from grammar or whether it's money they've earned from picking up change, they manage their own money. And, and you, have, you, you will build financial literacy once you have to make your own financial decisions. And how do you do that? Well, you got to earn your own money. It comes back to this whole working thing, right? And whether it's walking dogs or whether it's tutoring or babysitting or working in the Starbucks, all of these things, you're managing your own money. And once you manage your own money, then you start to understand that, that you understand its value. And once you understand its value, then you can decide what you want to do with it. And that influences everything. It influences where you want to go to school, where you want to work, the kind of job you want, the kind of career you want. It influences all of those things, but it's hard to do if you're not responsible for it. So the younger, the better that you can start taking some control of that, Um, having your own bank account, understanding how to write a check, uh, very important skills. Uh, So once you start controlling those things, and, and taking responsibility. And if that becomes easy to do if you're earning it yourself, right? So if you can, if you want to control that and it'll give you so much more independence um, as to how you grow as a person, but also will influence every decision thereafter, you know? And, and I, I had a conversation not long ago with someone who's actually my age and who'd made the comment to me, you know, I wish someone had told me when I was in college that the degree I had chosen had limited potential in terms of career opportunity. Because if I had have known that, I would have made different decisions. But the reason they didn't make those decisions is they weren't controlling their own financial destiny. And so they, they weren't thinking about those issues. They weren't thinking, well, if I wanna do this in college, where's that gonna get me? How much money am I gonna make? Can I do the things that I wanna do, right, in life? And, and it's tougher to make those if you, if you don't understand the, the value or the cost attached to those things and start thinking about things. In, in our house alone, every one of my kids through to my little one um, understands the price of a loaf of bread, the cost of milk, the cost of their shoes, the cost of clothing, the cost to live where we do. And they make those and they all understand that from a very young age. And we set them up with accounts to manage their own money, even small amounts of money from a young age so that as they grow older, that now my oldest is going off to college, understands the cost. And so can look at the price of tuition and look at the price of books and even the cost of a car and can understand all of these things because she's done it from a very, a, a very young age. Um, and I think that's really important. And again, it comes back to all this, this having a job and working through college. It will influence so much of where you want to go in your life 
if, if, you're, if you're controlling those decisions um, as to how, uh, how you're deploying the money you want and then where you want to go for a career, maybe money ends up not being valuable to you. And that's fine too. But if it turns out that you want these comforts and you understand how much these things cost, then you may decide you want to be wealthy and you want to be rich. Well, okay, now you're in my territory, right? So that, that determines and you've made a decision that these things are important to me, right? Having a job 40 hours a week um, with a lower compensation isn't as, I don't want that. I want this. And if it means that I have to work 70 hours, 60 hours, 100 hours to get this because I want all of these things, it is easier to evaluate those things if you've lived it. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, so just wrapping up, everyone that comes on the podcast, we ask them two questions. So the first one is, what are two to three books you've read that have really changed your perspective? Okay, all right. So um, number one, this guys, this shouldn't surprise you. And I wasn't even anticipating this question, but the number one book I recommend to everyone is a book called Grit by Angela Duckworth. Uh, it is the foundation of who I am as a person. And it is a great book to read about if you want to be successful, you got to work hard, right? And my second book is, um, is I had just read it, which may not be as interesting to read, is, is um, uh, To Rule the Waves. And it's about the uh, how uh, global dominance is actually determined by who rules the oceans. And it is a super cool book and it'll change your view around uh, the beach you see when you go out when you when you go to California but it also understands so much of the socio and global economics that's happening across countries is really about dominance of the oceans and 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 the quest for global dominance is really about that and so it's a super cool book but for for your for your listeners it's probably not as interesting as grit which I do recommend people should read it it's a really good book Awesome, Deb. The last question we have for you today is that if you can go back and give one piece of advice to your teenage self, what would it be? <laughs> Don't sweat the small stuff. For the things that sent you to your room crying your eyes out, they're not worth it. They're really not. You will grow up, life's going to be fine. They're bumps in the road bumps in the road and the bumps don't matter it's what you choose to do with the bumps and say done and pick myself up i'm going to keep on going and what seems catastrophic is not catastrophic i've had lots of things like that where i think oh my god that was such a disaster i can't believe it and and i i lost so much sleep and it wasn't worth it except to say that it made me stronger it, it i pushed me to want to be more successful um, and if you can take that from the experience as opposed to just simply cry and think this is a disaster, you will go so much further in life. You're defined by those downsides, not by the ups. The downsides, it's, it's how you, you move on and conquer from those. But I shouldn't have lost so much sleep. I lost so much sleep and I really shouldn't have. It really didn't matter. <laughs> it's not worth it. Awesome. Deb, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. I really appreciate you giving us your time. Very much welcome. Anytime, Jack, you want to give me a call, Feel free to call me. I will be your person that you need to, those persons that help you along the way. You give me a call. You want to stay with banking? I'd be happy to help. Awesome. That's it for today's episode of the 5 Muscle Podcast. As always, guys, peace. Thank you so, so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe and rate the podcast. Special thanks to Ayush Basu for producing social media content. To follow us on Instagram, look up the number 5AM Hustle Podcast. And for Twitter, it is just 5am hustle. Feel free to reach out to us at 5am hustle podcast at gmail.com. As always, guys, 
go win the day.